WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week's guest is the writer of Shadow Service at Vault, the upcoming The Ward from Dark Horse, Titans United from DC, and a whole bunch of Star Wars stuff, Kevin Scott. Welcome, Kevin. Hi, thanks for having me. So uh, your bio on your website says that you build far too much Lego. <laughs> yes, this is what? true. Well, is there <laughs> such a thing as too much Lego? Is that a thing? I mean, my wife seems to think there is, um, especially when I come <laughs> back from the Lego store, burst through the door and say, great news, I've just bought this. <laughs> and she says, we're going to have to move um, because every part of the house has Lego in it now. It's ridiculous. Um, and yeah, but, you know, there's part of me go, it's research. You know, especially if I'm making Star Wars chips, I need to know how those things work. Um, I've obviously put some of the non-canon Star Wars ships into Star Wars to canonize them so I can just claim the tax. Um, and yeah, it's um, it's a way to relax, to be honest, the Lego thing. It's, um, it's, a, a, it's creative with when you have to follow instructions, which is fantastic. So there's a little bit of puzzle solving, depending on how hard the kit is. Sure. But it's a thing where I spend all my time creating and I spend all my time, you know, thinking um, and working out story. And so to build something by following instructions, knowing you're going to get something at the end of it is actually quite cathartic. Um, and, and yeah, and, and it also means I don't, I don't watch TV when I'm doing it. I, I listen to audiobooks usually. And so I have to concentrate on what I'm doing one thing at a time, you know, or two things if I'm listening to an audiobook. Um, so, yeah, it's um, it's a little bit of an obsession, which has now turned into Gundam robot building as well. Okay. Um, just to add to the plastic in the house. You know. <laughs> what was your last uh, Lego build? Um, it was the Batman cow that came out um, recently, the the um, comic one. Um, but I have a to-build pile. Um, I think the next thing I'm going to start on is the Haunted House um, Lego set they, they did, which is part of their fairground. It's like, it's basically the, the Tower of Terror kind of thing from Disney, but a Lego version of it. So it's got one of those, and it's, it's yeah, it's fantastic. Um, but I have a huge pile of things I haven't built. Um, that I do have to go back, and I, st- I made the typewriter, but I, I think I made a mistake in the inner working, so it doesn't quite oh. type. It looks wonderful. I know it's not working properly, so I know I have to take it to bits and start again. Okay, yeah, I... Uh... Just a couple of weeks ago, as like a rainy day activity, bought the uh, Nintendo Entertainment System. All ah, right, uh, yeah. Lego set, yeah. Uh, and that one is, you know, I don't really display a lot of it. My son has a lot of the the Super Mario Legos, and so he's mm. got those. Uh, they have their own section of the basement, but that one is in <laughs> uh, a place of honor that I had to take down some long forgotten Funko Pops to uh, accommodate. Right. Yeah, my wife is very um, forgiving and. I mean, I do sort of like get around it by also buying her the odd set as well, because I'm like, well, you want to show yours, so I better put mine up. Um, but it usually like, I build something, like the Batman at the minute is in our lounge by the sofa. It will stay there for a while until she tells me that I really need to move it. Um, and mm-hmm. then something else will just appear in the room. Um, and yeah, it just gets moved around the house. And then up in the loft, I have boxes and boxes of things I've built, um, which I can't bear to break up. And so... You know, the idea is that I will, you know, put things on a cycle and, and, and display them, but it hasn't worked out like that. I just buy more Lego. It's dreadful. <laughs> uh, so uh, uh, getting to the heart of the matter, what are some yeah. of the first comics that you remember reading? Well, over here, because I'm, I'm, you should probably tell from my accent, I'm a Brit. And so over in the UK, we had a very different comic scene when I was growing up in the late 70s. We had sure. um, a weekly comic scene, which was largely humour titles, like the the classic is The Beano, which has been around for decades and decades and decades, um, and The Dandy and The Nutty. And it was all, they were all humour titles, which were weekly, weekly um, like 20 odd pages, and it would be single pages or double page stories of, of recurring characters. Um, and when I was growing up, there were literally dozens of them every week. And so there were some I always got, The Beano, nutty um and then my friends would get things like wizard and chips and i just remember all these titles i just love makes me smile if you think back back then um and we used to swap them and you know and 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 it was the holy grail if you found any that you'd not seen before mm-hmm. and from that i graduated on to 
when I say graduated, I still read them um, until I was far too old to read them. Um, unfortunately, they don't really exist anymore now. The Beano's the only one left. Um, but I sort of graduated onto the Marvel UK many, many titles that Marvel UK used to push out, including Star Wars, which was my first introduction to Star Wars. Um, and they used to do weekly reprints of the US titles and then back up. So that, and they were really clever. So they would do things. If it was Star Wars, the backup would be Star Lord because it's got the word star in it, you know. So Transformers, the backup was Machine Man. Um, and it was, so they were gradually pushing um, all their their um, own work through the license stuff, um, and again, the, and then there was obviously Spider Man Weekly, and then there was uh, there was um, the Mighty World of Marvel, and there was some original stuff like Captain Britain. Um, so they were majorly important to me, um, and sort of they sort of were, they were what led me into comic stock stores to discover. Basically, they they did Secret Wars as a weekly comic, um, and it was the it was like you know the crack to young comic fans because when they got to secret wars 2 they literally just you'd have four weeks of iron man and then it would go to power pack and then it would go to so it was properly like you know first one's free now go and find the rest and so you know and and, and i had to go and, and that's when i found my first dedicated comic store to find out what was happening next in iron man because it had just gone to the fantastic four or, or whatever um mm -hmm. so it was very clever marketing um and linked to that was 2000 ad as well um just dread which obviously a, a major staple over here of science fiction comics yeah. um so all of those things led me to american comic books um the thing that we didn't have much was dc it was um marvel ruled the, ruled the roost dc i only knew from um cartoons and tv and films and so blew my mind when i realized that that you know superman knew batman it was like what now no they're completely different um but because of that, DC became my holy grail because it was quite hard to get hold of and you had to go and find a dedicated store to find it and travel, persuade my dad to take me to London to go to Forbidden Planet on Denmark Street in London. Um, and then I would buy every bit of DC I could, I could afford and also could get hold of because Marvel was so easy to get in a way um, and DC was so different. And obviously you had you know, the big three, um, and then characters which seemed really exotic to us, like Green Lantern. I remember there was a a, co a, com a comedian over here called Lenny Henry, who in the 80s, did, he was a massive comic fan. Um, and he did a episode where he his character, Devil Wilkins, imagined he was a superhero. And it was based on the Green Lantern. And the next day in school, no one knew who he was playing, except for a couple of us, who, you know, who this is obviously before the Geeks won. Um, <laughs> <laughs> who uh, you know had an inkling of who the Green Lantern was, and so it just felt like, like felt like a very exclusive club. So I probably delved more into DC um, as a fan, and then it was I was just at the right age for John Byrne to come and reinvent Superman, and so that was it. I was all in at that point. Interesting. Uh, so yeah, we uh, let's let's start because you've you've got. You've got a lot going on right now, but mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're going to start with, with Shadow Service, uh, yes. your, your vault comic series with uh, artist Corinne Hell, colors Triona Farrell, and uh, Anne World Design on Lettering, uh, which yes. is coming back for a third arc starting April 13th. Uh, yes. For the listeners, I'm going to go ahead and read the solicit blurb for issue 11. Uh, all over the world, secret agents are being murdered by monstrous folk horrors, and not even MI666 is safe. Gina Meyer faces tragedy as a teammate turns enemy. But what of the quest to find out the truth about our past and powers? So, for people who aren't familiar, what is yeah. what is the origin of this series? When did you conceive this uh, supernatural spycraft baby? Oh, I, I think I've been writing this ever since I was ten. Um, I do like to maintain that my to-do list is exactly the same now as when I was eight years old, um, and I, I want that to always be the case. Um, but I, when I was a kid. Again, being a Brit, I had to like James Bond. It was the law. And Roger Moore was James Bond. Why wouldn't you like it? Um, I'm you can't see this, listeners, but I am wearing a James Bond T-shirt right now. Um, and that was just pure coincidence because, hey, it's me. Um, and so I was obsessed with James Bond. I was obsessed with Doctor Who. I was obsessed with Hammer Horror um, and Universal Horror. And those things always combined. And I used to make up stories going back literally decades about a group of spies called mi666 um and i tried so many ways to to make this a thing and um there, there's been different iterations in short stories in short story collections and anthologies um 
And it was when I was talking to Adrian at, at Vault um, at San Diego a few years back, back when we went to San Diego Comic-Con, and hopefully, fingers crossed, I'll be there this year. Um, and he said, you know, he wanted to work with me, which was fantastic. I wanted to work with them because I loved what they were doing. Um, and he said, what have you got? And when you have those moments, when you have that, you obviously have all these pictures in your head, but your brain also goes completely dead. And you go, oh, I've got some ideas, obviously. And you're sort of trying to back up. And it just, that old idea that I've been playing with, so just threw itself to the front of my mind. Um, and I said, Tinker Tailor, Soldier Witch. And he said, what is that? And I went, I will tell you after the con when I send you the pitch document. Um, and I went away and I, I had a little bit that I could sort of spiel them, but I had all these disparate parts. Um, and what had always been the problem, I didn't have a central character to bring them all together. Um, so it was never, it was always a group of spies who were worked in the supernatural vein, but they would all been there a long time. And there was no, you know, there wasn't that, that, reader um, proxy character who would come in and explore this world um, and the witch element really brought it home to me and it was um, Gina Meyer who's, play, who's our central character she's a witch who's been working as a private investigator for years um, because it means she can use her powers she, she doesn't really have a she has a career which means that she doesn't actually trust a lot of people which is, it links into her background and, and the fact she's magic and the fact she She's thought she's a monster all these years. Her best fr friend is literally a rat who can talk, she can talk to um, as a familiar. Um, and she becomes the way into MI666. They recruit her because of the people she knows and the world that she's operating in. And that was the thing that tied it all together. Um, and so now, yeah, we've, we've had 10 issues are out. We've told the story of Gina coming into MI666. Um, not quite trusting the people she's with because it's not that kind of organization but finding her feet and realizing that this is something she really wants to do um and now obviously as we've put our main character in that position that she's starting to find her feet we pull the rug out from under her immediately and mi666 starts to crumble around her now this is this is your first uh creator-owned uh yes. series correct yep yes How it is, yeah um, how have you found this process versus all the, you know, license to work for hire stuff that you've done? Um, it was at first actually quite daunting because it was the moment I realized I didn't ask to have to ask permission to do anything. Um, you know, so when you do work for hire stuff, whether that's DC Marvel or, or license work, obviously you're telling stories with characters that have been loaned to you for a short while. Um, and you have to, be cooperative you have to work as part of a group because the story you're telling isn't on its own and so there are always guardrails around there are always things you can do you can't do um sometimes half the job is having that conversation of working out what can i do in this situation and that can be fun and that can be very challenging but challenging in an extremely creative way because you have these problems that you have to work, work around um when you're working on creator owned obviously it is a case that you, the buck stops with you and your co-creator. And so I think when I was starting to really flesh out this world, that I realized I had to put guardrails in place. Otherwise it could go anywhere and that wouldn't be good for the story. So um, yeah, I suppose the difference was that I became my own, you know, in, in Star Wars, we have story group who work with us and are amazing and, um, and guide us through some of these pitfalls. I had to be my own story group on this one. Um, and I've, I mean, I've written original material before, but not in comics. And so, um, yeah, that was, it was both a blessing and a curse because the, the blessings obviously that you can be totally, you can be totally true to what you want to do. Um, the curse in it is that um, it can be a little bit daunting when you're, when you're first starting out. And I do, and I've talked about this publicly before, I suffer from imposter syndrome quite a lot. And I think so many people do in our industry because of the nature of creatives. Um, and so when you're given the, you know, the permission, he says in inverted comments, to do something like this, you have to sort of allow yourself to do it as well, um, especially when you're so used to working in other people's sandpits. So, um, yeah, that was the challenge at first, but I've loved every single minute of it. And, of course, I'm not alone with it because I've got Corinne and I've got um, Tree and, and an amazing team. And the book is now so um, much more than it would have been originally because of what Corinne and Tree have brought to it. Absolutely. 
Uh, had you expected the series to go into, you know, three arcs deep uh, from the outset? Are you planning, you know, one arc at a time? How is that working? There is a general story that we're working towards. Um, with all these things, you sort of, so Vault were great from the off and they said 10 issues. You know, you've got 10 issues to try and establish this, which mm -hmm. is amazing. You know, it's it's such, um, especially as we launched this in the middle of a pandemic. Mm -hmm. So um, for them to give us, have that much faith in the concept that they would give us the 10 issues was phenomenal. So we knew we had the, we had the space um, to, to build the groundwork for it. And yeah, we, we have got a certain end in sight. I, I'm very much a believer of like, you know, stories need an end point. Even if there's story beyond that end point, in some way, you need to know where you're going. Um, so that has been in place from the beginning. Um, thankfully, people, you know, picked up Shadow Service, they liked it. And so we're able to continue on. Um, and so yeah, this next art pushes that story nearer that point but not quite there. Uh, how has your working relationship with the rest of the creative team, you know, Corinne Tree, et cetera, evolved mm -hmm. over this period? It's been amazing. I mean, we're working on, um, literally just before I came on the lines to talk to you guys, I was on our, we have a little Slack group and we were on there we were discussing the pages that Corinne's working on this week. Um, I think it's developed. I'm a massive monster fan, as you you guys can see by looking at the bookshelf behind me. And, mm -hmm. um, but actually with this series, I wasn't planning to go so monsterific as we have. Um, I knew there was going to be demons. I knew there was going to be supernatural elements. Um, and I also knew Corinne. So Corinne, I'd worked with on Star Wars Adventures, um, one of the Vader's Castle horror for kids series I've done. Mm -hmm. um, and when I first brought Shadow Service to, to Vault, no artist was attached to it. And Adrian suggested Corinne and I jumped at the chance because I knew how well um, I'd worked with her before. I don't think I re quite realised how much Corinne loves drawing monsters and loves drawing gore. Um, and I'm a big horror fan. She's a massive horror fan as well. Um, we like very similar um, movies and we have very similar tastes in horror. So I think what's happened is we've pushed, it's pushed into more of a horror vein than I thought we were going to have. Um, and I've loved it for that. I mean, one of our biggest moments for both of us was Fangoria asking us to write a piece on the most Fangoria moments in, and it was on the website just for, at the end of the last arc. Um, and then we look back and we went, oh, no, this is absolutely Fangoria, isn't it? Because it was getting, <laughs> as the series goes on, it gets gorier and gorier and gorier. Um, but, you know, hopefully not in a gratuitous way. It, you know, there are reasons that we have the gore in it. But definitely from the monsters. The monsters have been, I, I started off by putting a couple in, but when I saw what Corin was producing, and also what she was putting onto the pages that I'd never even suggested. So there is a... It's become part of the iconography of the series. There's a sort of angelic skeletal figure, which she just started dropping in the back of uh, backgrounds. There's a bit earlier on, the, the sky, spy master in Shadow Service is, he looks like an eight-year-old boy. He definitely isn't an eight-year-old boy, Hex. Um, and he can, produce, he can perform some forms of magic. Um, and I said that he's on some kind of, in front of some kind of altar and he's, he's floating and he's got a bowl of blood in front of him. And she drew this amazing ornate angel skull faced angel thing in the background. Um, the next issue they have a, and this is me wearing my doctor who fandom on my sleeve. They have a, a mobile headquarters, which is bigger on the inside in a van. And um, in the middle of this, there is now this massive angelic skeletal figure. Um, and that, that has literally become part of the story because I kept, I started wondering, well, what are these things? And I knew later on, there was going to be a character that would have um, a connection with the divine. And I, I, I suddenly realized, well, that's what the divine looks like in our world. And mm -hmm. so, and it's meant I've lent into that far more, which is actually near, it's probably nearer what I originally wanted to do with it, but I would, I would have probably played it a little bit straighter. Um, but Corin has given me, you know, the, the, the confidence and because she, I know what she can do um, and the joy she has of doing these scenes. Um, I mean, there is a, a scene where there's an orgy in Westminster Abbey, um, and 
again, the, the amount of detail she puts in her pages, I should have known what was going to be in that orgy. But yes, you could, you can sit and stare at that spread for, for a long, long time and see so many things that probably you weren't expecting to see in the comic. And I probably wasn't expecting to write. But again, that scene just developed. The, the more we talked about it and the more we talked about where we were going, um, I, I realized what we could what we could do. Um, so yeah, it's absolutely our book now. Um, and that's the way, the only way I'd have it. That, that, that scene definitely answers the question, is this Fangoria uh, or, or not? Yes. But, <laughs> uh, you know, you mentioned you mentioned the van and I did want to ask, you know, when when you're when you're doing that scene, did you have to fight yourself to keep from writing it's bigger on the inside? Um, I, I think in an early draft, it's there. I think that if I, I go look back, but I'm pretty sure that Gina says at one point, so it makes a crack about David Tennant. And so I knew I had to acknowledge it um, because it was obviously what I was doing. Um, but <laughs> it was, yeah, I mean, yeah, let's face it, it's happened before in the, in the, the whole, um, Hellblazer series, you know, you've got his house, which is dimensionally transcendent as well. It's, it's mm. such a trope within fantasy and, and, and um, as well that I, I knew I wanted to play with it. Um, and yeah, making it a, a white transit van just tickled me. Um, so, so yeah, it was definitely, I, I've tried to be quite obvious when I am, you know, where my influence is on my sleeve. There's lots of little Easter eggs and some that I, 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 if someone gets some of them, well done, I owe you a drink because, you know, <laughs> there's references to really obscure hammer horror actors and stuntmen and loads of things like that in, in the book as well, because it's what I love doing. If I've got to come up with a character's name, I might as well find something that, you know, as long as it, as as ever with Easter eggs, as long as it doesn't pull you out of the story, you know, and, and half the time I'm the only one who knows and I have to sit there and explain it to everyone else. Um, so it just makes me chuckle. Um, so, yeah, it was, the, it, the, it, I've got to make sure I don't go too far. And, and the mobile, the mobile HQ is probably the nearest I'm going to get. Um, I don't think we're going to start seeing it traveling in time yet. Yet. <laughs> never say uh, never <laughs> uh, getting back to the the Westminster Abbey scene uh, so <laughs> we, uh, how much did you enjoy writing and then getting the art back from Corinne on the scene where Gina gives Johnson the figure <laughs> oh um, if I could do that in real life I would do it all the time so yeah it was um, yeah I mean <laughs> it's I it, there's and also that the um, the home secretary gets eaten at one point um, you know it, it's <laughs> That's the good thing about writing horror. As Neil Gaiman always says that horror writers are the most unbalanced people he knows because it's all on the page. So, you know, the rage I was probably feeling at that point towards them um, all came out in that scene. So, so yeah, it, it was one of those moments when actually it, it probably didn't have the space to get that gag in, but I, I, I made other cho choices so we could absolutely do it. So, yeah, it's, um, and it's also, it is the 2000 AD reader in me. You know, 2000 AD is known for that kind of humour, even though it started off as a kid's comic. You know, it's known for, I mean, Judge Dredd is all parody. You know, I think people get Dredd wrong when they treat him seriously. You know, um, it's it's supposed to be a commentary. It's supposed to be a parody. Um, so, yeah, I wanted to get that kind of element because it's it's what I grew up reading the sort of you know the british invasion of comics is exactly you know my heroes who were writing that at the time they came from the 2000 ad tradition and i think vault actually is very 2000 ad in a lot of the choices it makes as a as a publisher so um so yeah it was a it was a, a lovely moment that i was very proud of it uh so with this third arc the the idea mm. part of the idea obviously uh, is we're looking to get more into Gina's origin and, and yes. her past and where her powers come from, correct? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the thing about Gina, and um, this actually came out quite early on. So um, Taylor, Taylor, um, Rebecca Taylor, who I was working with, um, as the editor on the book on the first first round of it, um, it was a question she asked me very early on. It's like, you know, how much does Gina know about the magical world? Um, and I think when I was originally going into it, I think she knew far more than we've ended up with. And I think that works exceptionally well. And I'm so glad that Tay asked me that question um, because we added the mystery straight away that she doesn't really understand where her, where her powers came from. And there is no magic in the world 
beyond her and the, her, her rat, as far as she knows. And as the story goes on, she starts to realise, you know, there's a lot more magic that's been going on under the surface. And um, as with all good spy thrillers, that everyone seems to know more than the, the main character. Um, so, yeah, part of the part of the sort of the B story, I suppose, for this arc is the fact that Gina and certain people she's working with are investigating this. And it's one of the reasons she's thrown herself into the spy service, into the, into the shadow service. So she has the resources to work out um, where she's coming from. But, you know, as all good stories um, develop, the two things start to combine. And she realises that there's probably more to it than, than any of them knew. Certainly. Uh, so then uh, coming up on the docket, uh, just announced, mm -hmm. I think last week, uh, is yes. uh, The Ward in yes. uh, June from Dark Horse with uh, Andres Ponce on art and this is a yeah. uh super another supernatural series but this one is set it's also a hospital drama yeah uh, so this one's um this was more sort of urban fantasy than horror there are horror aspects into it because everything i write has got horror aspects into it at some point but this is basically um i mean how i've been talking about it it's it's er meets supernatural you know so it's um and that was the original idea of it you know what would you do if you were a minotaur and you were in a fight and you lost one of your horns um, where would you go to be healed? And so the idea is that in this fictional town in America, there is a secret hospital that for generations has been dealing with the supernatural community, um, while also trying to keep them secret and away from the main hospital. Um, and it's, uh, as with all good things like Code Black and ER and everything, it's underfunded and it's stretched. And you literally have a character, one of the characters, Nurse Black, on, on, in the comic, um, she literally structured herself too thin. She can duplicate herself until the point that she is exhausted because she's running 20 versions of herself in the middle of a crisis. So um, it was, my wife loves medical dramas. I'm a, I'm a big fan of them as well. I mean, she's a huge ER fan and introduced me to ER. Um, and my head being what it is, I immediately started to think, well, what would happen if you threw vampires or banshees or ghosts into this? Um, and and deal with the fact that the people who are operating on these supernatural creatures aren't supernatural themselves. So our main characters are human um, and they have all committed themselves to this life that they will help the supernatural community. And so, yeah, they run out of a hospital called, called St. Lilith, uh, Lilith's and... Um, yeah, it's been secret for a long time and things are happening that because the funding is now so bad and because the situation is getting so bad that they won't be able to keep it secret for much longer. And what does that mean to them and the people that they care for? Uh, so hospital dramas obviously tend to thrive on a mix of your, your patients of the week and then also yes. the serialized soap opera. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, how does that, you know, without spoiling anything, obviously, mm. you know, how does that scan when you add horror and supernatural elements to the mix? Well, you know, I think it's anything you write in the supernatural world has to have a human story at the heart of it. Even if your main characters aren't human, I think you look at the stuff that Mike Flanagan's been doing on Netflix, you know, um, and it's something he said, I don't know um, if you watch Midnight Mass, but um, something he said around when Midnight Mass came out is that he want, he would have to tell, be able to tell that story if you removed the supernatural element. You know, he, he'd have to care for those characters, that situation, if you remove the monsters. And that's what I've been trying to do in the stuff that I've been working on. And the ward is absolutely part of that, that, Hopefully, what people are going to get is the very human drama of the doctors and nurses who are trying to keep this place together. They are dealing with extraordinary things, and that's what's so fascinating about this. But let's face it, any doctor who works in an ER department, any nurse that works in the ER department deals with unexpected and extraordinary things every single day. Um, it just means that we can heighten that um, as well. So um, a lot of the themes you will see... Um, are the kinds of things you would see in medical dramas or you read about in the papers, or if you know people who work in an ER, things they would have told you. Um, we can just have fun with those in, you know, exploring them through a world where, you know, people have magical powers as well. So uh, at this point, you've got comics out at Marvel, DC, IDW, uh, Titan, Legendary, Vault, and Dark Horse. Uh, apologies if I missed one. Uh, <laughs> 
what will be your first act when you finish your obvious campaign of uh, conquest by publisher? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, I'm, it's, hey, I'm a, I'm a job in actor. I'm a job in actor. I'm not a job in actor. I'm a job in writer. And so my job is to try and get as much work as possible. Um, I also love what I do. So, um, yeah, it, I, I know it does seem at the minute, if anyone's following me in my newsletter, that every week I'm going, and here's another thing. The thing is, of course, is that I've been working on a lot of this stuff for years. And, the events of the last couple of years have slowed stuff down. So the, literally the ward we were set to announce before the pandemic and we were working on it then. Um, and it's the comic that wouldn't die because there were at points we thought we're not going to get this out because of the situation that happened in comics. Um, and then we were going to, we were going to put it out as a graphic novel. And now um, because the, the, cause we, you know, we had to, face the reality that comic stores were, were were in trouble you know and they and they were struggling because of the pandemic and so um what you know what could we do in that situation so again we looked at a graphic novel but because uh, we we're in the best industry in the world and you know and comic stores are our lifeblood dark horse came back and said you know what shall we shall we do this as a monthly and we just jumped at the chance because that's how we always wanted to tell it. So, um, so yeah, it's um, it's a lot of the stuff that's coming out now is stuff that I've I've I, mean, I wrote the ward four years ago, um, okay. and so we you know for various reasons and and complications because of the pandemic, it's taken that you know to this point that we can get it out now. So I know at the minute it looks like I'm everywhere, um, uh, but yeah, most of this stuff was happening before I was working on. Um, the High Republic, which has been the thing I think most people have come to know me for now. So, so yeah, it's this sort of mass of things that are now finally seeing the light of day. Well, you uh, just mentioned the High Republic, so hmm. uh, I think that's a good time to segue okay. uh, to my esteemed colleague, Mr. Lazowitz. <laughs> yes, um, because you just said it. You are part of this writers' collective that's <laughs> working on the High Republic. Um, what is that collaborative process like with these various writers? building a whole new era of Star Wars? How do you break the beats of each of these cycles of novels and comics down? Um, with a lot of meetings. Um, so <laughs> we started this process in 2018 um, with a visit to um, Skywalker Ranch, which for me was like going to the Holy Land, um, um, literally, you know, and so we started that week by going, what story do we want to tell? And Lucasfilm were, were amazing. I mean, so Mike Seglane at, at Lucasfilm Publishing had gathered the five of us, um, like Lucasfilm's very own Nick Fury, and sort of said, you know, we're going to get you together. And we were all working on Star Wars at the time. Um, and they put us in a room with all the editors, with Story Group, and they went, here are the things we're doing. Um, and so they gave us a lot of information that we'd obviously signed a lot of NDAs in uh, around this is where you can't go, um, leaving the majority of the galaxy open. What do you want to do? Um, and so and when I was talking earlier about guardrails, it was like these guardrails were so wide. It was like, what you, what, what, what can we do? And they were going, well, you that's why you're here. So um, we all went away. We brainstormed for a week. We had to come up with five pitches. Um, we had to then each of us go away. Um, and talking to each other, write up one of those ideas, present it back. It went to Kathy, it went to everyone at Lucasfilm. Um, and then we were all taken back to the ranch for the second week to be told which one um, had been chosen. And then we pulled that apart and put it back together again and started the process. So long before any of us knew what we were writing, long before I knew that I was going to be writing the Marvel series or Daniel was going to be writing the IDW series um, or Justine would be working the way or, or any of us, um, we were all working on the story together. And so we we treated it like a writer's room for a TV show. You know, we broke the story. We found the main points. And, and we found the main points for five years of storytelling. So, you know, it's a, it's a big event um, and it's a long event. And so, um, yeah, and I said the, the genius of it, I think, was the fact that none of us knew what we were writing at that point. So we all had um, a role to play in creating the story as a whole. And we weren't... I don't think we would work like this, but when you when you have a property like this and a story like this, and you have your own little part of it, you immediately start going towards what you can do there. But because we didn't know what it was going to be, you know, what elements we were going to be writing, everything was important to us. Um, and so it was, yeah, it was a good way into that process before we 
we found out what our you know our assignments would be and and, and they asked us what we would like to do and we all threw in the bits that we wanted to write um but yeah so we we went into that point where the jobs the projects were were handed out knowing the beats every major beat of that story that five-year story um right from beginning to end and so it was brilliant so the what actually happened was that then that grew over time again this is when the pandemic worked in our favor we we delayed the launch uh, of the um of of the entire initiative not because the work wasn't done because we had started but it, you know it was again we were trying we wanted to see what the world was going to look like in a publishing you know stra- um vein before we we launched um and we just announced i think i think i flew back from la announcing from when we announced it at disney um the disney studios and two weeks later we were in lockdown and so yeah. um but what had actually happened is that loads of people got very excited about the launch wonderfully, including other publishers who came to us and said, well, actually, if Marvel are doing something, we want a bit of this. If, if Delray are doing something, we want a bit of this. And so the delay allowed us to take look at that timeline and expand it and go, right, what space does that give us to, to bring new elements to it? So all the key points are still the same. How we're getting there is perhaps a little bit different. But we also built that into the structure because we knew when we were writing it, there would be a bit of discovery. We wanted to give ourselves space to realize that, hang on, that character, and it, it actually happened with me in the comic. So if you've read the comic, there's, it's mainly the story of a young knight called Keith Trennis and her master, Skier, who's a Trandoshan. Um, up to about two weeks before I started, it was always Keith's story. Skier was there, but they weren't master and apprentice. And it was there was something wrong in the comic, and I was I kept batting my head against the wall, and I was talking to the editors, Mark and um, and Tom at Marvel, talking to Mike, talking to the other story architects, and going that something about this isn't ringing true, and none of us could really see what it was. And I did what I always do, and went for a very, very, very long walk one day, um, and literally walked all day, and halfway through that walk, I just asked myself, "Question: well, What? Who is?" Keith's master, because she mentioned her master at one point, but we never knew them. So, well, what if that's scare? And suddenly everything um, fell into place. And everything that's pretty much happened was always going to happen, but the central relationship wasn't there. And so because we'd given ourselves this grace around those main, main points, it meant I could go on to the group and say, just had an idea, how does this affect your bits? And for some of them, some people said, that totally screws something, but it's a much better idea than I was going to do. So, you know, and and it happened on other parts of it as well. That other, someone else, when writing, would realise, well, what if we did this? And so then we could pivot because we knew, again, like I said earlier on with Shadow Service, we knew what the end point was and we knew what the end of phase one was. We knew what the end of phase two was. So as long as we can get to those points, we've got the freedom to be able to to um, react to how we're writing, react to what people are responding to as well. Um, you know, I think it's important as creators to know what you're doing and you can't respond to everything that you see online, but there's been some response to some characters that is so strong that it meant, it's meant we've expanded their, their, their time in the, in the story. Um, one of those um, was Ty Yorick, who's a character in my novel, The Rising Storm, who now has her own series of miniseries, um, because from the moment we announced her, people just went crazy for her. Um, and so we thought, well, is there, is there space now to, to expand on her? Um, so yeah, so it's, it's, we have this one big document, which is a living document, um, which is the best way, you know, there are certain, to get back to Doctor Who, there are certain fixed points in time we cannot move. Um, but how we get there is the exciting bit half the time, um, because it, we've got a little bit of freedom. Um, in the planet, and that was uh, Monster Temple Peak, right? That the yes. miniseries, yeah, which was a yeah. ton of fun. Um, Thank you. Now, you you mentioned earlier uh, that you always bring a bit of horror to everything you write. Yeah. So my assumption is that the the Drenger was something you might, well, not maybe completely behind, are one of your ideas because that is for those out there who haven't read the High Republic. The Drenger are these plant monsters that zombify or control it then people who are infected by them and they're a an absolute horror monster in the center of star wars story yeah i mean so yeah i, I put my hands up the drenger are completely um 
Well, they came from Ian McKay, um, uh, Ian McKay um, bit of concept art he did, um, which was sort of plant-like. And I've got this big, if people read my stuff, plant horror does um, rear its head because I do find it fascinating and also um, strangely disturbing that we're surrounded by these things all the time, which could turn against us at any moment. Um, and... So yeah, the Drango were my reaction to that. And so um, it gave me a chance to have a bit of cosmic horror, a bit of creeping horror, but uh, um, you know, um, anything with tentacles gets called Lovecraftian. It's not Lovecraftian, but it's the, you know, it's it was the chance to bring that into Star Wars. Um, and for me, Star Wars is about the monsters as well. You know, when I was a kid, Empire was my first film I saw um, and I loved it. I'd come to Star Wars through the comics. However, when I saw Return of the Jedi, I just went, ballistic because yeah as soon as you go into Jabba's palace oh my god there are so many monsters and then they give you a rancor so they put a kaiju in the middle of Star Wars and there are so many rancors in this room um hiding away in corners because I've collected them for years um and then even the even the Ewoks I mean there's a lot of Ewok hate out there I will not stand for it I think Ewoks are wonderful again I have a little shrine over there with pictures from the um, animated show um the Ewoks are cuddly teddy bears that will eat you literally um you know they want to eat Han Solo um and so yeah I mean even they are monsters in, in a very different way and so yeah from that point on, I was all in on the, on the monsters. So I did, I was, I've been pushing the monster agenda in the High Republic ever since. And the question that I asked, which has been quoted right back in that original um, original ranch visit, was what do the Jedi fear? Because we know they're not supposed to fear things, but everyone's afraid of something. So, um, and that's launched a lot of the storytelling that we're, we're telling. So there is a vein of horror running through the High Republic. Um, but because it's Star Wars, there's also a vein of hope as well um, intertwined in it. And, and to be fair, the best horror has always got hope in it um, because you need that to actually fear the dread. Um, so, yeah, horror is a big part of the centre of the story. Yeah, I, mean, I, I don't, for those out there who are reading and aren't caught up, I don't want to mention the the final hook that we got at the end of this first cycle in Eye of the Storm, but there is some mm. definite horror there oh, yeah. and what we we get uh and, and although speaking of less monstrous creatures uh mm -hmm. you had the honor of reintroducing the hujibs in I absolutely the did, yeah. most recent <laughs> star wars adventures annual yes uh, i assume that is from your love of the old star wars series because yeah. i encountered the hujibs in this, you know, picture book, 33rd and a third record combo. With the record, yeah, I've got it downstairs. Okay, <laughs> yeah. yep, wow. that was where I remember the Hoojibs from as a kid. Yeah. And I've yeah. read the, the comics since then, but mm. yeah, I was like, I just saw them, I was like, wait, those are those little guys from that record. Yeah, so basically, I got a bit of reputation um, in Star Wars because I, as a joke, campaigned to bring back Jackson, um, the green-furred rabbit from the original Marvel run, you know, famously hated by George Lucas. Um, and so it, he was in the very first issue of Star Wars I, I ever read. And so I knew him before I knew Luke Skywalker. Um, I don't know what that says about me, but that was my introduction to Star Wars. Um, so I, as a joke, kept kept pitching, and we could do something with Jackson. They were like, no, 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 obviously can't because that's madness. Um, and then when we were right working on Star Wars Adventures, which is an all-age comic, you know, lots of kids for it reading it, I kept saying, you know, it would be great in this, Jackson. And then I was getting a lot of looks. Uh, and then one day they came back to me and said, if you had eight pages, would that basically shut you up? Because um, they needed a backup strip for an annual. Um, would you love to do an, a Jackson story? And obviously I said yes. So they knew it would get, you know, a reaction from people. Um, we did that eight-page story. And then it became an annual event because people went mad for it. And today, what? Kids went mad for it. And it was amazing. I used to go to San Diego with people coming up, kids coming up, and their, their dad's looking at me going, you know who their favourite character is now? Jackson. I mean, we now have a Jackson action figure, and it's because of that eight-page eight story, you know. So we, I mean... Someone said to me the other day, you realize you've realised you've written Jackson more than anyone else in the universe. But I'm not sure there was much, you know, competition. But, you know, he was in two and a half stories in the original run. Um, but he has taken on a life himself. And because of that, I kept putting in hujibs in the background of the of the strip. Um, or, or there would be a... he would, There's a story he teams up with Lando to try and get something out of the, uh, um, the Emperor's 
archives and it was this little icon a little idol and i was like well let's make it a golden hoojib and so i would always or if a ship crashed i was like and a hoojib's running away and every time they go no 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 leave the hoojibs if it and they just said there was one note that matt martin from story group said he said if we're going to do the hoojibs we need to make it bigger than a cameo in a jackson story so immediately i got that email i pitched a 30 page annual um to bring them back um and they said yes i was like really okay great um so basically if there is ever a slightly rabbit looking animal in star wars or sentient life form i will try my hardest now to bring it back because it's now what i do um but you know i love the fact that people have taken jackson back into their hearts um because he's silly and he is you know nonsensical in a lot of ways but hey the rebellion does have a admiral who's a fish um and um and it get I have a chance through Jackson to literally tell that story. And there was a story I wrote for one of the short story collections um, from a certain point of view. When Jackson goes to Lando and says, why don't people take me seriously when there is an admiral who's a fish? You know, when there's these guys who are literally tarantulas. Um, but because I've got these ears and these teeth, no one takes me seriously. And it's a really good story to tell in Star Wars because Star Wars is the kind of galaxy where they're not supposed to notice what you look like but they do because of the way we read them they go that guy looks like bugs bunny um and so yeah it's, we've been able to tell some really interesting stories and hopefully will for a long time yet so on top of reintroducing these characters mm. uh you created the graph siblings milo and lena yeah. for the wild yeah. space and they've carried over into various comics mm. and you've added milo's grandson emil as the framing device around the backups in Star Wars Adventures. Star Wars yeah. And you've introduced their ancestors in Out of the Shadows, your High Republic novel. So how much fun has it been sort of building this dynasty throughout the history of the Star Wars universe? Well, it's interesting, actually, because the graphs in the High Republic have nothing to do with me. Um, so I created them um, for this this book is my first thing I ever wrote for Star Wars. This book, a, a children's book series, um, written for the for Egmont over in the UK, um, and it was supposed to be. We've not. It was actually they wanted to pitch the series, um, and it was just before the Force Awakens came out, so they couldn't really focus on the original trilogy because that's not what you know. The whole point of the sequel trilogy was to introduce a new generation. It was too soon to have Ray and everyone um, in it because the film hadn't come out yet. Um, Rebels was starting to get traction, but again, they didn't want to limit it to just being the Rebels crew. So they said, you know, they wanted a series with two kids in Star Wars, which we've not really seen since Galaxy of Fear, probably. And so, um, so yeah, that's that's where the, the graphs came from. And I honestly thought when we we wrote, I, I, I co-wrote that with 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 another writer, Tom, and we do alternate books. And I thought when we got to the end of the series, that was probably it. And then. We got the chance through Tales of Vader's Castle um, and um, Ventures in, I'm sorry, Star Wars Adventures to develop them a bit more. And, and so Lena, one of the characters from the books, we that's the great thing with Star Wars. You can have characters grow up. And so, you know, she's a child in the in the book in the books. She's a rebel commander in her twenties in Tales of Vader's Castle. So I thought that was my sort of like my time with the graphs and there was little nice things that there's the graph archive which is something like the alien archive is but it's supposed to be from their archive um and justina ireland put them into the high republic um and yeah and it's totally surprised me that um it's, it, it works so well that she came back and said do you know that those graphs they they were bad guys back in the day and i was like yes that's why they were running and it's one of those moments that you know when someone else brings part of the story you can just fire back and so um and then there's lena so who's the um, um the chancellor and again that was completely by serendipity charles decided you know he said well about you know, the chancellor lena so and he came up with the name on the hoof and then i was able to say well that's who lena's named after in those books because you know she a big historical figure for her so it's it's so wonderful to see these characters grow and this this family to grow um and it, it's great that actually I've not really got any part of that. So far, I've not written them um, in the High Republic. So um, as far as I can think, I don't think I've written the graphs once. Right. I, I had that backwards. I, I, yeah. so I guess in my head, I just figured, oh, well, yeah. they're a graph. They have to. Yeah. 
I'm sure I probably will write them at some point because they're becoming more and more important by every book. Um, but it, it's been great to see them develop. And then I don't know if I'm going to be telling any more st- stories with Lena and Milo um, in the future. Um, but when I do, I'm going to be able to go into it with that background. And so that's that's really, really cool. Um, and you mentioned it just there. Uh, you wrote those tales of Vader's, the various mm-hmm. Vader's Castle annual Halloween mm-hmm. stories, which were always such a delight with all of these amazing artists oh phenomenal is there anyone i mean of all of them which were the ones who you really excited to finally get to you know write a story that say kelly jones oh I, I mean i'm a batman fan so that just blew my mind that he would even be doing it and he'd be hadn't he be doing i didn't realize that kelly was such a big hammer fan so you know so basically people i don't know we the tales from vader's castle are the treehouse of horror um, kind of stories within the Star Wars universe. They're they're literally the ghost stories that you know people tell around um, fires in in the Star Wars universe, and it meant that we can do things that again I didn't think I was going to be able to get away with. I could have um, I could retell the Wicker Men with, with the Ewoks. I could turn Count Dooku into Count Dracula. I could make Tarkin Frankenstein. And, you know, and there are obvious reasons why I wanted to do those, those last two. Um, and then when they started to bring in, I mean, I, so Derek Charm, who was the first artist on it, who I've worked with on and off for years um, on Star Wars, and we're going to be working on some stuff that's not Star Wars in the future. And um, me and Derek went into this not really knowing who else was going to be involved. And it's just been amazing. And that entire series has blown me away because, again, I thought that was a, a one and done deal. You know, I'd get a... a uh, a, a, a year where I can do a, a Halloween special and again people just took it to their hearts and it came back and it's become an annual event um, and that's phenomenal you know it's fantastic and yeah the things I've been allowed to do on it are ridiculous you know so you know where Gamorians obviously I never thought that was going to happen um, and it's got to the point now and they just go, oh, look, it's Cal doing his Halloween thing and it, it inspired a Lego Star Wars movie on on disney plus and all of this stuff blows my mind working on star wars blows my mind working in any of the things i i work in blows my mind because for me i am just this little kid from bristol in england and i can't believe i get to play with these toys um but to have these little corners that i've managed to map out for myself whether it's by accident or 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 design is just incredible and the fact that people would want to read that where it was just me and mike Saglane from lucasfilm sitting in a bar in in san diego and wouldn't it be fun if we did this um and yeah and it's been it's become an annual event for what four or five years now um which is phenomenal final deep nerd star wars question uh are there any characters within the star wars universe who you haven't gotten to write yet who are on your personal hit list. I mean, Mara Jade has to be there, but I don't think I'll ever will get to write her. Um, I don't know. Um, oh, God, there's so many. I mean, Darth Bane. I mean, the Darth Bane trilogy and novels are my, you know, some of my all-time favourite Star Wars novels and Star Wars stories ever. Um, and I'd be very nervous to write Darth Bane because of what Drew did. Um, God, I'd love to give it a go. Um, I'd love to go back into the old, old Republic. I'd love to write some proper Sith shit, <laughs> you know, and really get stuck into it. And um, yeah, I think that's probably where where I would love to go. Um, I've been very lucky. Do you know what? I also I'd love to write some more sequel stuff, um, but be able to expand it because um, I was very lucky in Star Wars Adventures to be able to write comics with Finn and and and. Um, and Ray, because they they don't really exist in comic form, you know. It's it's and we we've not got a lot of stories of them outside the movies. And I would kill to to write some stuff for that because I think this the if you can imagine what the the old expanded universe did for the original trilogy, um, and I mean pre the the prequels, but and then after the prequels as well, um, the stuff we could do with the sequel characters um, could be incredible. And see, so, yeah, I'd love to be able to give it if I, if I could work my will and you know, be given free reign to do anything i'd say just give, give me that lot and i'll um i'll tell you some good stories uh now outside of star wars and that you uh the final issue of the titans united miniseries mm. that you wrote for dc dropped in print last week mm. um that existed in a sort of 
curious continuity in Everything that it, about Titans United was curious. Oh, so, yeah. Um, um, yeah, so Titans United, to give you a bit of backstory to it, it was it was absolutely, it was DC saying Titans has been a massive hit, the TV show. Um, how do we introduce the Teen Titans and the Titans of the comics to people who might come that way? Because so many times we have it that, let's face it, it happens all the time. When Thor was first big in the MCU, you went to the Marvel comics, and while I loved the entire Jane story and that Jason did, it wasn't the Thor that people recognised from the from the um, from the films. So what DC have said is that they want to try and support these films. That even if in the main continuity at the time, that Titans crew can't get together for various reasons. There is a comic which is canon adjacent, so it could happen. Maybe it's DC. There are how many worlds are there? Um, well, fifty-two, but there's probably thousands more as well. So. Um, to have what would be a very traditional comic setup, um, but with the with the team and the roster from the TV show and everything about that. So that was a crazy series to work on because originally it was going to be online. It was going to be a weekly webcomic. Um, and then it was going to be like a few pages a week. And then halfway through, it was like, oh, now it's going to be in print and we're going to put it all together. And so actually, if I look back on it, the structure becomes far more like a comic from about issue three, because that's when I started to write it as a comic because it was for, for webcomic for that point. And I had so many beats I had to hit because it had to be that particular roster. Certain characters had to be in the, I mean, this is what you do as a work of higher writer anyway, but I, I had to have Black Star in it and I had to have um, Lady Vic in it and I had to have this, this situation and go to that place um, because of the very nature of, you know, it was supposed to be when you saw something in the show, you could then go to the Titans United thing online and see a story featuring them. And it just evolved into this very odd little sort of like bubble universe, which again, people seem to have enjoyed. And so I'm really, I was really worried that people would go, but hang on a minute. Why is Red Hood on the team? And hang on, Superboy can't be there because he's over there and doing this. And so, um, but hey, it's comics and comics have, can do anything. So yeah, it's, um, we now have a Titans United verse, um, you know, so will it come back? I can't. I don't know is the honest answer to that, but um, the response has been great. And so there's plenty more stories we could tell. And Titans isn't going anywhere because the show is bringing in viewers. And so I hope that we're going to be able to return to them. I mean, end of the day, I, I can literally put my hand out and pull up volume two of the new Titans omnibus from where I sit at any time because I'm rereading at the minute because why wouldn't you? you know, it's still one of the best runs ever. Um, and when the news hit about um, George Perez, I, I decided to re to reread. And so um, to be able to tap into that original banter and that original spirit with sort of more adult versions of the Titans, and again, to throw Red Hood into it and to throw Superboy into it. I know Superboy's been a part of the Titans in, in the mainstream run for a long time. Um, it was just too much fun, um, and it was absolutely my love letter to that to that shit series. Um, because yeah, Teen Titans was one of those comics, as I said, that I went and had to find. I, very first DC comic I ever read was the DC Comic Presents with um, Superman and, and Green Lantern, and it pulled out the middle was the pullout that introduced the Teen Titans. So they've been there all the way through, and I just uh, as, as soon as I could find that, I started to. Um, obsess about them so yeah titans was something i could not couldn't not do because um if i never get a chance to write those characters again at least i can say for those seven issues i was sort of like giving my tribute to that run that meant so much to me when i was growing up great um and just you know as we're, as we're starting to wind down one one mm. particular question that is topical for the moment as someone who has written a lot of doctor who uh, how much credence are you giving to the current rumor that Hugh Grant is in negotiation to play Doctor Who? I don't give any credence to any story ever about Doctor Who. Um, but <laughs> I tell you what, I mean, Hugh Grant has been Doctor Who before um, in a comic relief sketch um, in the 90s where Rowan Atkinson was also the Doctor in that one. And so was Joanna Lumley. And so was Jim Broadbrent. Um, and so was Richard E. Grant for the first time he was a Doctor. Um, and so... And I tell you what, for the five minutes that P. Grant was the doctor in that in that um, sketch, he was phenomenal. 
Um, and that was when no one knew that Hugh Grant could actually act like he can, um, you know, before we discovered him as a character actor, because he was that guy with the floppy hair and he got into trouble in L.A. Um, and so I'd love to see Hugh Grant playing Doctor Who now. I'm not sure it's going to happen, but um, it would be marvellous. But yeah, if you can, if you can find it, um, The Curse of Fatal Death, it's written by someone called Stephen Moffat, who went on to do quite a lot. Um, they say Rowan Atkinson plays the Doctor for the first half. Jonathan Price is the master. Um, and for the second half of it, the Doctor regenerates four times in about five minutes. Um, and they are all marvellous. And the Hugh Grant moment, um, it's worth watching because in that you can see the beginning of New Who. Um, so, yeah, if we go full circle and have him back, great. I don't know where they're going to go. I... I I haven't worked on Doctor Who for a long time. Um, and while I know Russell and I know people involved, I don't want to know anything because um, for the last few years, I've watched Doctor Who as a fan with my kids. And so I love the fact I don't know who the Doctor, new Doctor is, you know. Um, and I love all the people trying to work out who it is and all the reports. And, you know, it's like the new James Bond. I'm, I'm in seventh heaven at the minute because they're discussing the new Doctor Who and the new James Bond. And it's it's everyone, obviously. It's, you know, it's anyone who can act apparently can be either of them if you believe the papers at the minute. I mean, literally, Doctor Who, anyone could be the Doctor. So that's great. And so James Bond, yeah, perhaps we need to follow a certain type. Um, but, yeah, it's a, it's a marvellous time to be a fan of both franchises because who knows? Literally, who knows? As long as you stay out of internet forums, it's a marvelous time to be a fan of either. Yeah, yeah. Well, see, I don't. I I tried not to never go. I never go near any of that anyway. I think I'm on Twitter, and I've learned in recent years to stop having opinions on Twitter because you have to. Because it, if I have an opinion about Star Wars, it becomes you know Star Wars writer confirms. I'm, like, I'm not confirming anything. You know, it's like I'm just mucking around half the time. So yeah, um, I do all my my twitter in about such things offline with people um so yeah it's um i try and avoid any kind of debate um on that level online That's certainly much safer that way yeah <laughs> uh what are what are you reading right now Oh, that's a very good question. I'm reading a lot of Star Wars because I have to. Is my job? It's um really um I'm, what I'm reading away from Star Wars. Um, I am a superhero fan. I'm loving what Dan Slott's doing on Fantastic Four. Fantastic Four um, uh, my, is my Marvel book and always has been. Um, and so to see what he's doing with the FF, um, and I am beside myself with excitement that we might see a good FF on the screen. Um, and yeah, so I'm loving that. Um, I'm loving. Um, I loved. I'm loving what Tom is doing over in DC with the Superman, Sonny Kalau, what he's doing. Nightwing, his Nightwing is just perfection um, and proves above all that Dick Grayson is the better Batman. Um, And uh, yeah, no, he is. (laughs) (laughs) He'll actually win if he was Batman. Um, And it's the Teen Titans fan of me. I can't help it. Um, (laughs) And yeah, and, and, and stuff like, DC versus vampires because it's just absolute fun. It's just ridiculously fun. I mean, there's the scene if you've not if you've not read it, just read it for the scene when Batman works out who's a vampire in the Bat family or who isn't because it's just beautifully, beautifully done. Um, so, so yeah, that's all sort of the mainstream stuff. And, and the, um, from a indie point of view, Berserker from, from Vault, what um, Mike Morisi's doing, I think that's, that's just genius. And again, it's the most 2000 AD thing that the 2000 AD have never published. Um, so I'm a big fan of that as well. Um, I haven't got as much time to read as much as I want to at the minute because of the work that I'm doing. Um, but the work that I'm doing means I'm reading. So it's, um, it's all very, it's all wrapped up one in the other. Uh, again, judging from the bookcase behind you, you're reading plenty. <laughs> yeah, most of this is probably gathering dust now, and that's just the, the actual figures. Um, but no, it's yeah, um, I, I do. It, I, it's my it's my happy place going into. I'll be going into town tomorrow. I've not been in the comic store for Excelsior Comics, where I get my comics in Bristol. I've not been for a few weeks, so there will be a thick wad of stuff waiting for me. Um, and so yeah, uh, and largely it will be a lot of back books. Um, because that's yeah that's what i read excellent 
Well, uh, Kevin, this has been a fantastic time. Uh, final question as we let you go. How can people follow you online and keep up with Shadow Service and Ward and all your Star Wars stuff and everything else? Um, probably the best place to find me is my website, which is kevinscott.com, C-A-V-A-N, scott.com. Um, or find me on Twitter, where I am far too much, um, at Kevin Scott. Um, they're probably the best two places to, to keep an eye on what I'm up to. Wonderful. Kevin, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcast, Battle of the Atom, Chris's on Infinite Earths, and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin. Uh, P.S. Matt and Will, sorry I made you read White Knight again. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a free comic in the mail for my collection. A $2 donation gets you a slot in the Comics XF staff picks. A $3 donation gets you access to our new bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom, and a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from ComicsXF.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, Kat Purcell from ComicsXF, Liz Large from ComicsXF, Will Nevin from ComicsXF, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. The Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember, the Forceworks character Sentry was apparently part of Combo Man. W-N-Q-A.